conflict. You'll find it in all 66 books of the Bible, from Adam and Eve in the garden to Jesus in the temple. How should we handle the conflict that comes to all of us? Well, that's an interesting conversation we welcome you to just ahead. And with that, we say hello and glad you're with us here on The Land and the Book, a one-hour flyover of the Middle East with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? It's true. Uh, Each week we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. Right, Charlie? That's right, John. In fact, Life in Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life in Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now, Life in Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Well, let's take a look at current events from the Middle East region. Even though Ramadan, Passover, and Easter are over, the unrest between Israel and the Palestinians has continued. What are some of the reasons for the ongoing conflict, Charlie, and can it be brought under control? You know, John, in some ways, the ongoing conflict's like a Greek tragedy with missteps and misunderstandings occurring at precisely the wrong moment. The accidental shooting of a Palestinian-American journalist who was serving with Al Jazeera about two weeks ago is an example of what I mean. She wasn't shot deliberately, and there's still some uncertainty whether she was killed by Palestinian or Israeli forces during a gun battle in Jenin. But the sad reality is that she was shot and killed, and the Palestinian leadership called it a deliberate assassination and a war crime. World opinion on the issue turned against Israel since it happened during an Israeli incursion into Jenin. And that sad situation was compounded during the reporter's funeral procession when Israeli forces tried to stop the crowd from waving Palestinian flags in Jerusalem. In the chaos that ensued, caught on camera by all the journalists covering the event, Israeli police charged into the crowd and the casket almost toppled to the ground. Now that further inflamed Palestinian anger and enraged many in the West. Other events simply compounded the problem. This past Sunday saw the confluence of two additional days on Jewish and Arab calendars. On the Jewish calendar, Sunday was second Passover. In Numbers 9, God commanded those unable to participate in the regular Passover to do so on second Passover exactly one month later. Well, this year, that also happened to be the day when the Palestinians celebrate Nakba, the Arab word for catastrophe. Uh, It's the day they remember the date on which the state of Israel was born. Some Jewish groups posted a flyer online calling on Jews to visit the Temple Mount on Sunday to promote God's commandments associated with the Temple. Hamas responded by calling on the Palestinian masses to also travel there Sunday to thwart the evil plans of the occupation, as they wrote it. Hmm. Thankfully, tensions didn't boil over and things remained relatively calm, at least on the Temple Mount. Now, can the situation be brought under control? Uh, Probably so, but it'll take God's intervention along with some cooler heads prevailing on both sides. Israel needs to respond more wisely and not react in a heavy-handed fashion. They've got to stop providing emotional ammunition to the other side. And the Palestinian leadership, especially the Palestinian Authority, need to stop inciting the masses by using inflammatory language. 
The question, though, is will that happen? And that's anybody's guess. Right. These are political and religious reasons for individuals on both sides, mm-hmm. and they want to have tensions continue, in some cases escalate, and that's simply not helpful for anyone. Well, on a slightly different note, this past Wednesday evening, Israel was in flames. Thankfully, it wasn't because of rioting. Instead, it was the celebration of Lagba Omer. So what is this lesser-known Jewish celebration? Yeah, Lagba Omer is a minor Jewish festival that combines history and tradition. Uh, In Leviticus 23, God commanded Israel to count off 50 days from Passover to Shavuot, which is the festival we know as Pentecost. Uh, In that passage, God referred to the sheaf of the wave offering, which would have been the offering of barley. And the word for sheaf is the Hebrew word omer. And that 49 or 50 days that pass between Passover and Shavuot, it depends on how someone's actually counting, those days are known as the omer period. Well, Lagba Omer Festival celebrates the 33rd day of that period. In fact, the word Lag comes from the Hebrew letters Lamed and Gimel, which mean 33 or 33rd. Up until this day in that 50-day period, Jewish tradition says Jews aren't permitted to get a haircut, wear new clothes, attend public entertainment, or get married. So according to Jewish tradition, the 33rd day is when a a plague that killed thousands of rabbinical students about a thousand years ago ended. The lighting of bonfires on this day also symbolizes the spiritual gift of the Kabbalah revealed by a Mishnaic sage who was said to have died on that date in Moron in northern Israel. Well, anyway, tens of thousands of ultra-Orthodox Jews traveled to Moron on their annual pilgrimage to that site. Sadly, last year, 45 died when they were trampled by the crowd leaving the gathering. Mm. This year's event was more tightly controlled and ended without any major incident. Uh, The fire commissioner also signed an order banning most bonfires throughout Israel, though they estimate there were still tens of thousands of fires lit. And thankfully, most were kept from burning out of control. Hmm. Well, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine continues with no apparent end in sight. And we hear a lot about the battles and the impact of the war on civilians within Ukraine. But what are the larger implications of this conflict, especially as it impacts the Middle East? You know, some of the impact is fairly obvious. For example, the price of oil has increased dramatically, and it's enriched countries like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. Aramco Oil is now the wealthiest company in the world, surpassing Apple Computer. The power and influence of OPEC has also again surged because they have what the world wants. And unfortunately, they appear less willing to help bail out the U.S. and the West than they have been in the past. They've only increased production quotas marginally since the conflict began, and countries like Saudi Arabia are still not pumping as much oil as they're allowed under those quotas. Their strategy appears to be to do all they can to keep the price of oil and natural gas as high as possible for as long as possible. A lesser-known impact of the conflict would be the effect it's having on world food prices. Russia and Ukraine together supplied over a quarter of the world's wheat, and the war is causing a dramatic drop in production. And while this won't affect the U.S. quite as much, it could create famine conditions in other parts of the world, increasing unrest and placing additional strain on world governments. There are also reports that Ukrainian grain stored in that country was smuggled out by Russian ships and taken to Syria. It's possible Russia is using that grain to shore up allies like Syria and Iran in the Middle East. It's also possible they could try to use that grain along with their own stockpiles to buy allies and influence in the Middle East and Africa. Another result is that other nations are responding by hoarding their own resources of food and commodities. For example, India suspended its export of palm oil, which will also contribute to the rise in food inflation worldwide. 
And finally, Russia's more aggressive stance toward countries supporting Ukraine could also impact Israel. The West has been pressuring Israel to supply Ukraine with some of its more advanced military hardware. Russia could retaliate by making it more difficult for Israel to respond to what Iran's doing in Syria. Russia fired an S-300 missile at Israeli warplanes for the first time this past week, Hmm. perhaps as a warning to Israel. The bottom line is that what's happening in Ukraine doesn't just involve that one country. It's impacting the economy of the entire world, and it's making the world a much more dangerous place. Now, thankfully, John, we do know who's ultimately in control, and it's not Russia. Well, imagine a major incident, like a gas main explosion in a built-up urban area. Traffic is snarled, blocking the arrival of emergency vehicles and the evacuating of those needing medical attention. Sounds like a job for City Hawk, an air ambulance being developed in Israel by Urban Aeronautics. Charlie, tell us more about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, John, this is a fascinating idea. Israel's Urban Aeronautics has partnered with a U.S.-based company to develop produce and market an aircraft for emergency medical services. The aircraft will be a vertical takeoff and landing ambulance that can land anywhere in minutes, including congested areas where helicopters would be too dangerous. The craft has no external wings or rotors. Instead, it uses powerful internal ducted fans to bring a pilot and EMTs right to the site. The company's also working on the next generation of unmanned aerial vehicles. Uh, Think of it like a, a large passenger drone capable of operating in complex environments. This aircraft can conduct emergency response missions like delivering food and water and supplies and could also carry up to four patients for emergency medical evacuation. Hmm. Now imagine the day, John, not too far off in the future, when large flying drones swoop over gridlock traffic to deliver emergency supplies and personnel and evacuate patients. And then when that day comes, think of the engineers in amazing Israel and uh, make sure to thank them for putting their expertise in drone and artificial intelligence to work, helping to save lives. Just ahead, great conflicts in the Bible. And then after that, Charlie returns with answers to your Bible questions. Also, a segment later on that focuses on a devotional, something that rivets a passage of Scripture to a place in Scripture. Where are we headed today, Charlie? You know, John, we're continuing that series on great mountaintop experiences, and we're heading to one of my favorites. We're going to travel to the top of Mount Carmel with Elijah in 1 Kings 18. All right, lots to enjoy on today's broadcast, and you can always hear it again at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Information about our guests, past, present, and future, all there, as well as links that uh, you'll enjoy at thelandandthebook.org. Coming up next, great conflicts in the Bible, and what should we do about the conflicts in our own lives here on The Land and the Book? Conflict. Our world has never lacked for it. And when you think about it, the pages of Scripture are filled with conflict. Conflict between brothers, conflict between nations, even conflict between religious groups. What lessons can you and I learn from these famous conflicts so you and I don't take the bait to escalate? Well, that's our focus coming up here on The Land and the Book. Welcome. I'm John Geiger with segment two of our broadcast. Quick thought here. How can you and I connect with Jewish friends around us with simple statements about Christ's love? Well, listen to this. So at some point, as you walk down the roads of life with your Jewish friend, 
the elephant in the room is going to come up, and that would be a historical treatment of Jewish people from a supposedly Christian perspective that was less than Christian. I speak of things like the Crusades. I speak of things like the Holocaust. And Eva Rydelnik is here to help us sort out how do we address those things? How do we present them or not present them? Wow. This is a vital area of understanding, and it is the major roadblock in Jewish people, even considering that Jesus might be the Messiah, because of their acute awareness of Christian anti-Semitism, thing that people in the church are often not really aware of, or just kind of in a general kind of bad cloud back there, but that was a long time ago. For Jewish people, it is more real, more deep, more current, and more extensive in knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, when a Jewish person confronts this issue with us, I think the most important thing that we can do is acknowledge the reality of that. That, yes, horrible things were done to the Jewish people in the name of Jesus. And it wasn't just a long time ago. It was recent, and it's ongoing. But those horrible things that were done in the name of Jesus do not reflect the person of Jesus. Exactly right, John. Exactly right. And this is a very difficult um, division to make. But the fact is, and I think this is our challenge in talking to our Jewish friends, these things were done in the name of Jesus. But if you look at the book about Jesus, both the Old and the New Testament, these horrible events are no way drawn actually from the scriptures, even though the scriptures were used wrongly to perpetrate these horrors. An important perspective there from Eva Rodelnik, who's an adjunct faculty member with the Moody Bible Institute. After a decade of penning advertising campaigns, Jay Payleitner became a freelance radio producer for people you've never heard of, like Chuck Colson or Josh McDowell, Fathers.com, the Heritage Foundation, and Voice of the Martyrs, now a national speaker and the best-selling author of more than 25 books, including Don't Take the Bait to Escalate. Jay lives with his wife, Rita, in St. Charles, Illinois, where they raised five kids and fostered 10. Jay, I'm looking forward to our focus today, Famous Conflicts in Scripture. So thanks for spending some time with us here at The Land and the Book. Well, John, uh, delighted to be with you to dig into some of these uh, conflicts in the Bible and what we can learn from them. Yeah. Well, Jay, you don't have to go very far into Scripture to encounter the very first conflict. Take us to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and paint the picture. Boy, oh boy, when she brought, again, the apple, whatever it was, the, the fruit, the fruit of the tree, over to Adam, uh, that was a conflict there. And uh, that little discussion, it's not long in Scripture, right. but the, imagine that discussion they had. She was probably feeling a little guilty, so she wanted him to share in this. Yeah. And then he was going, I don't know, I got this is my new bride. I want to keep her happy. So there's that yeah, kind of right. thing going back and forth. We don't think about it that deeply, but right. there was there was emotions going on there. And uh, decisions were made, yeah. and conflict uh, ensued. Hmm. What do you think, John? I think uh, they did understand that there was some risk. Even if they didn't understand the idea of, of what death would be, God had said it. In the day hmm. that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well... That was a risk. Apparently, she wanted the the feel, the taste of that fruit more than what God had offered. Well, because Satan had put that in her yeah. in her head that they, yeah. that she, they were going to get wise and they were going to have powers that God didn't want them to have. Of course, I'm sitting here thinking that Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world, Jay. Yet here <laughs> they were feeling an emotion they probably had never felt before: tension. Hmm. Now, shouldn't that in itself have blasted this warning alarm of some kind for them? Something's not right here. Better hit the pause button. What's your best guess as to why that emotional component was so easily passed over? Well, I think it's, again, because the serpent had been 
had been uh, in, yeah. in their heads. We're talking about famous conflicts in Scripture today on The Land and the Book with our guest, Jay Payleichner. He's written, Don't Take the Bait to Escalate. Well, sadly, the level of conflict escalates rather quickly between Adam and Eve's first two children. This is surely one of the most famous conflicts in all of Scripture. Why did this thing spin out of control so wildly, so quickly, to the point of, of murder? Well, I think uh, uh, just a jealousy and envy, something that was going on in Cain's mind, certainly. We don't know what was wrong with Cain's gift. Why God kind of rejected Cain's gift of his fruit, whatever he presented to God. But um, Abel must have had this nice, uh, juicy land that yeah. he's dead in. <laughs> and uh, so Cain was jealous. I think that's one of those core emotions, envy, that can cause any conflict to escalate. Jay Payleitner is a retired Chicago ad man, the author of many books, including Don't Take the Bait to Escalate. And we've got two copies we're giving away today to the very first two people who email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Tell us, send me Jay's book on conflict, all right? The Land and the Book at moody.edu. First two emails to come in, get a copy of Jay's book. Well, Jay, one thing that uh, I think we sometimes maybe overlook is the fact that conflict can actually be a good thing. You say so in this book. What do you mean? Well, certainly, I started actually writing the book because of all the conflict in the world, whether it was politics or COVID or racial unrest or, or you know, family squabbles. And then as I started digging in, I realized that approached properly with wisdom and, and, uh, and thoughtfulness, conflict can be a good thing. And yeah. I, I threw a few quick examples. Uh, I do marriage conferences, and I talk to couples who have hit bottom in their marriage. Mm. But if they get through that conflict— Man, they have a long, successful marriage. Think about uh, a manufacturer who uh, ships a defective product. That's a tragedy. But if their customer service steps up and solves that, they'll have a customer for life. Yes. Or last thought, uh, think about a, a couple of boys playing high school baseball, the two best athletes on the team. They both want to play shortstop. And there's conflict there. Yeah. But a wise coach will get the best out of those boys, and the team will be better because of it. And those two boys will probably end up being best friends. So conflict, if you approach it, decide what you want. Yeah. Know the risks going into it. Empathize with your adversary so you get their perspective. Yes. You don't always have to agree with your adversary. But you have to know what they're thinking, yes. what they're going through. Demonstrate that you care about their point of view. Well, uh, yes, or decide that I know what their point of view is, so I'm going to I'm going to do battle against them. That's a David and Goliath thing. Okay. I mean, there was conflict there, David right, and Goliath. For sure, sure. But um, we know what they wanted, uh, and it was war. And Goliath wanted to, uh, you know, put the Philistines in charge. So David said, "No, I'm going to stop that." And uh, as Christians. That is one of our great gifts because we can see the big picture. Yeah. Uh, think about that for one second. Um, we know that it's all going to work out. In the end, we also know that God's going to use all things for good. So that's the principles in the book that we can apply to uh, some, of these, some of these biblical conflicts. All right, let's get back to famous conflicts in Scripture. Another famous conflict is Abraham and Lot. What do we need to know about this one? Any lessons we can apply, Jay? Well, you can picture those two guys, Abraham and Lot. Uh, they're doing very successful. Yep. And uh, this is one of the actually one of the stories that I kind of tear apart and look at in, in depth in the book. But uh, they're looking out and they're trying to divide the territory because they're, they're herdsmen. Uh, their herds are getting way too big and large. And uh, so they're... Uh, 
they're deciding where to split the land, and Lot uh, ends up going, well, I like that out there on the plain of Jordan yeah, over there. Right. Looks looks pretty good. And Abram, Abram at that point, he goes, well, you know what? You can have that part. You can have that whole beautiful, well-watered plain of Jordan out there for a couple reasons. He had chatted with God, looked up at the stars, and, and had been promised so much by God that he could see the big picture. He knew that that God had promised him so much that he was going to be okay no matter where he brought his sheep and cows or whatever he had there. And also, uh, think about this for a second. In that uh, plain of Jordan, of course, was Sodom and Gomorrah. And not yet, but it would be there kind of in the future. Yes, yes. And so God, in his in God's wisdom, <laughs> was protecting Abram yes. from ending up being tempted by Sodom and Gomorrah. So uh, think about that, how that ended up. And uh, let's uh, salute Abram for saying, you know what, Lot, you can have that share. Take your choice. Well, then we come to the conflict between Moses and the Israelites, or as you put it, Jay, Moses versus two million whiners. (laughs) What is this conflict ultimately all about? And there were lots of little ones along the way. Well, 40 years in the desert is a long time, and I I think that I would have been whining if I was (laughs) one of the Israelites. Uh, We should have been back. Why did you take us out of Egypt, Uh, they're saying to Moses. And and this is all we have to eat. And... uh, God provided. He provided uh, manna. But even the manna, they didn't, they didn't, right. they, they weren't happy with and that. They had steak. They, you know? <laughs> that's right. Exactly right. So I think the whole lesson of uh, the 40 years in the desert is all about trust and knowing that God will provide. Uh, so many of these conflicts that we're talking about, if you turn around and say, oh, God, what are you teaching me here? It'll be about trust and his provision, and uh, you can always come back to him. Well, Jesus was no stranger to conflict. Among his harshest critics, the Pharisees. What about that scene with the woman caught in the act of adultery? You know, that's, that's quite a poignant moment. There's conflict there for sure. Well, for sure. The Pharisees had a point. The, uh, the law said they were supposed to stone this adulterous woman. And uh, when uh, they confronted Jesus with that, did he give a big, long lecture? <laughs> no, no. He... Uh, bent over and drew in the sand. John, what do you think that he was drawing in the sand that day? Well, there are all kinds of conjecturing that's gone on. You know, some say the sins that these people had done individually. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, the Old Testament law. Maybe. Uh, maybe the names of the, of the worst offenders. Um, he gives them time to think. Yeah. But Jesus uh, stood up and said, uh, as we know, paraphrasing, uh, whoever here is without sin, feel free to cast the first stone. Right. Fascinating about that whole scene it was the older Pharisees that left first. first. Yes. And I'm thinking they knew what they were up against, and they knew they had lost this, this verbal battle. But I'm picturing these young Pharisees, the young ones going, oh, I want to stone her still. I want to stone her still. <laughs> uh, but let's not forget that Jesus did have final words with the woman who had been caught in adultery. And the whole idea is they don't condemn you, and neither do I. And then with the punctuation mark, go and sin no more. Yeah. There's a classic conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees in the temple. Describe this scene where Jesus ultimately says to them, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Wow, there's some conflict there. Yeah, that's, that scene is often brought up when I'm talking to people and they go, well, I can be angry. Someone who's angry and you, you call them on it. They say, well, I can be angry because Jesus was angry. Remember, mm-hmm. he, he turned the, the tables over in the temple. And <laughs> I'm quick to say, first off, uh, you're not Jesus. <laughs> and second, uh, that's a righteous anger 
So uh, you need to analyze what you're really angry at. And the third thing that we forget is that that was really the first door open for when the Pharisees went and said, hmm, it says in, in Mark 11, as a matter of fact, I believe the uh, chief priests and the teachers heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So think about that for a second. Jesus knew what was going on. This didn't come as a surprise to him. Uh, He knew that he was opening the door and escalating this conflict, but he knew that also was his destiny. So maybe that's the bigger lesson, is that sometimes we're called to escalate a conflict because God wants us to. It's part of God's plan. But in a biblical way, always. Well, uh, for sure. (laughs) Well, one last question, Jay. What has your study in this area of conflict taught you? And what would you like to leave with us regarding your advice, don't take the bait to escalate? Well, um, I started writing this book thinking that it would be mostly applied to businesses, to business ideas and leaders, that kind of thing. But uh, as I've done interviews and talks on this book, so many hurting families out there have division and conflict uh, that has been going on for a few weeks or decades. And uh, if you go ahead and think, what do I really want? I want my family to get back together. The risk is that, yeah, I might have to apologize. The risk might be that there might be some harsher words or stirring up more troubles. Uh, But if you put yourself in the shoes of your adversary, which could be your cousin or your sister, your brother, or or somebody in your family, and think about what they need, what they want, oh my goodness, that'll, uh, that'll turn your heart around. And then expect the win. Go into all of your debates and arguments and conflicts uh, with uh, a little bit of optimism and look for that. It's a cliche, but uh, that win-win, that's really out yeah. there. It's really out there. Great talking with Jay Payleitner, who's written Don't Take the Bait to Escalate. And again, two copies we're giving away today to the very first two folks who email us and say, send me Jay's book on conflict. You can send that email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. You ready for some fresh Bible questions? I am. Charlie's back with those next. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Gager with our host, Charlie Dyer, whose Bible is open, whose smile is large because... Well, this segment is one of your passions, isn't it, Charlie? It really is, John. The teacher in me loves answering questions. And we've got no shortage of those. Starting with this one from Jeff, he says, As I was studying about leprosy today, I came across a story of Moses and his sister Miriam. It mentioned that they had an issue with Moses and the Ethiopian woman. I was wondering if she was Moses' second wife or who she was, and what did Aaron and Miriam do to anger the Lord as they did? Yeah, and actually, there are three questions that need to be answered. And the first is, who was this woman? And then second, where is she from? And third, why the issue raised by Miriam and Aaron? Uh, Well, there's two possibilities on the identity of the woman. She could be Zipporah, Moses' Midianite wife, or it could be a second wife taken by Moses, perhaps following Zipporah's otherwise unrecorded death. Now, the argument against it being Zipporah is the fact that the woman's called actually a Cushite in Numbers 12, verse 1. And we know Zipporah was the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian. But that isn't as big a problem. In fact, there could be somewhat of a surprising answer. Cush was located south of Egypt, and Midian's located on the Arabian Peninsula. But in Habakkuk 3.7, the term Kushan and Midian are used synonymously. So it's possible Zipporah could be referenced as a Cushite, meaning she's from Kushan, which was the area in Midian. And I tend to believe the wife in question 
is Zipporah since this is early in the wilderness wanderings and there was no other reference of her dying. Now that leads to the final question though, why did the issue come up in the first place? And in our Bibles, it looks like both Miriam and Aaron were speaking out against Moses, but in Numbers 12, the verb spoke is in the feminine singular. In other words, Aaron's part of the problem, but the leader in this rebellion was Miriam. It literally says in Hebrew there, then she spoke, Miriam and Aaron, against Moses. In Numbers 11.4, the most recent complaint about the lack of meat was instigated by the rabble with them. That was a reference to the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with Israel. So it's possible Miriam struggled with prejudice against these non-Israelites and saw Zipporah as being part of the reason Moses hadn't taken action to get rid of them from among the Israelites. It's also possible Miriam saw herself as the leading female among the Israelites and was jealous of Zipporah's close connection to Moses as his wife. But in either case, she She and Aaron raised the issue of Moses being married to a non-Israelite to challenge his right to lead the nation. God became angry because of their prejudice against Moses' wife and their prideful claim in demanding equal standing with Moses. And uh, that's why Miriam was made leprous. Kem listens to us over WKES in Florida and says, I've read Genesis 4 many times, and it never occurred to me why Cain would be fearful of whoever finds me will kill me. That's his quote. When up to this point, the only people we know of are Adam, Eve, and Cain, and his deceased brother Abel. Who does he assume will kill him? Or is he projecting into his future days when others will know his background? Well, the only people mentioned in the story, at least up to the time of Cain's murder of his brother, are Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Uh, The fact that Cain had a wife at the time he fled must mean that the birth of Seth and the other sons and daughters had already been taking place before Cain murdered his brother. So when Cain said, whoever finds me will kill me, I think he was referring to either his parents or his siblings. Now, we're not told how many children Adam and Eve had, but the fact that they lived hundreds of years suggests that likely they had many children. And since Cain and Abel were both adults by the time of the murder, uh, some of those other children had already been born. Cain was concerned, I think, because scores, you know, maybe even hundreds of his relatives were alive who might want to avenge the death of Abel. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. It's question time. Your questions are always welcome at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Like this one from Mary. If all believers throughout the ages have resurrected bodies when the new heaven and the new earth are revealed, Revelation 21 verse 1, what would be the purpose of the tree of life's leaves for the healing of the nations? Mentioned in Revelation 22, verse 22. Your thoughts? Yeah, and to answer, I think we need to understand actually the meaning of that Greek word used there for healing that John uses. Uh, The word is therapeion. In fact, we get the word therapeutic from it. When we think of uh, therapeutic, we think in terms of medical treatment, but the word also had the idea of nurturing, taking care of, attending to, uh, restoring someone or something. In fact, in Luke 12, 42, the word is actually translated servants as someone who was taking care of others. By using this word, I think God was illustrating the reality that eternal life isn't just measured in the number of days we're going to live, but in the quality of those days as well. The leaves will promote the enjoyment of life, benefiting everyone through all the blessings God's going to provide. In fact, I think that's made clear in the very next verse, which says, and there'll no longer be any curse. The curse of disease and death that came at the time of the fall is going to be totally eliminated. And I think the presence of the tree of life in the New Jerusalem was there to illustrate that. Sandy takes us to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, where it says, If we hand over a church member that is living in sin to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, we will be saving his spirit on the day of the Lord. 
That's a loose translation from the CSB version. Her question, does the verb at the end of this verse mean they will be saved or they may be saved? Okay. Uh, the verb that's used is an aorist passive subjunctive third person singular. Uh, it's part of a purpose clause Paul introduces there with the Greek word hina, which in our Bibles shows up like in order that. Now, here's the reality. The individual is to experience physical judgment at the hand of Satan so that his spirit will be delivered at the time when the Lord comes to take his own to heaven and judge those who remain on earth. So even though the verb's in the subjunctive mood, it doesn't necessarily imply doubt as to whether or not the person will be saved. In fact, Paul used a similar construction in 1 Corinthians 11, where he describes God's physical judgment on those who are treating the Lord's table with a lack of respect. He says, some were weak and sickly and others have even fallen asleep, which was a euphemism for having died. Uh, God had already judged some individuals for their action. But then in verse 32, Paul says, when individuals are judged in this way, they're disciplined by the Lord. And he follows it with the Greek word hina plus an aorist passive subjunctive verb, just like in chapter five. He says, these believers are judged by God with some even being put to death so that they wouldn't be condemned along with the world. So in the context, Paul isn't expressing any doubt about their salvation. I just think he uses that subjunctive mood because the future action hadn't yet taken place. Okay, more great questions ahead here on The Land and the Book. First, this thought, though. Did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? Now, each week, of course, we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, but it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. Yeah, that is a great question that you asked, John, and, and the reality is Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. Uh, we've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on the show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Now, Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Susan writes, I listen to your program on podcast and it is so convenient. Hope you've checked that out. It's at our website, by the way, thelandandthebook.org. Her question, is there a temple in heaven? Seems like there might be conflicting Bible verses on this, she says. Yeah, and I actually need to answer two ways. First, there does indeed appear to be a temple in heaven. Uh, Moses was told to construct the tabernacle after the pattern he was shown on Mount Sinai. And the writer of Hebrews says that was a copy and shadow of what is in heaven in Hebrews 8. Now, in Psalm 18, David, uh, before there was a temple in Jerusalem was built, says he cried to the Lord God for help, and from his temple he heard my cry. It's clear that there was a temple in heaven because the response to David's cry, he says, was God then parting the heavens and coming down. But here's the second point that balances out the first. From what we read at the end of the book of Revelation, there will not be a temple in the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. John describes the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, and he says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So though we're not given all the details, it appears that in the new heavens and new earth, God's dwelling changes. Rather than being in a heavenly temple, God will dwell among the angels and the redeemed in the New Jerusalem. From Derek, this question, I have held for some years that now is the only time when the elect of any nation may respond to the call to be born again. But you present a compelling case for what seems to be a two-phase redemption. 
one prior to Messiah's return, that's present, and one after the seed of Abraham see him and ultimately recognize that he is the long-awaited one, but both through the veil of his flesh. So will others beside the 12 tribes be saved during this tribulational period? Yeah, well, I, I start by saying, obviously, people are being redeemed now, and I believe there also will be some redeemed during the tribulation period. And I hold that in part because of Revelation 7, which is toward the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, the chapter begins with 144,000 Jews for Jesus, but then it ends with a multitude from many tribes and peoples and tongues and nations who are going to come to faith during that period. Uh, so we do know people are going to come to faith at that time. You know, just another great example of the amazing grace of God. Well, it's been fast, it's been fun, but maybe your question wasn't aired. Could it be you didn't send it to us? <laughs> We'd love to hear from you at the land and the book at moody.edu. The land and the book at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional is next. Hope you'll stick around for more on the land and the book. It's the ultimate showdown. Smoke, fire, truth versus deception, life versus death. They all come into dramatic focus in the scene that Dr. Charlie Dyer is about to paint for us here on The Land and the Book. You've got a front row seat, so I'd suggest you stay put as we first hear this brief testimonial of how going to the Holy Land can change a life. This is Eric from Spokane, and uh, we just got back from our trip to Israel. It's been a week since we've been back. I've got many, many things running through my head about the trip that were just fantastic. But one thing from this week that I wanted to share is that um, I have personally, and everybody I've talked to that was on the trip, has talked to multiple people about Israel, about the trip, about how safe it was. And it was just interesting how many people, believers and non-believers alike, have asked questions, had conversations, deep conversations that were able to share our faith and, and uh, our uh, love for Jesus with them. So out of all the things we did on the trip, it was great. And uh, I really appreciated the way you handled the guiding and, and explaining things to us. But since we've been back, it's just been one conversation after another. And I thank you for that. Have you ever noticed when you listen to these Holy Land experiences how every one of them is like a fingerprint? Completely unique in its design. No two the same. And that's the way God seems to work in our hearts as we visit the Holy Land. Everybody coming away with something different. Obviously, some shared experiences, but very much a a unique way that God has of impressing his own heart, his own love for that land on our own hearts. Well, Charlie, we'll uh, turn our focus now to your devotional. Quite a scene, Elijah on Mount Carmel. If it is anything, it's a, it's a dramatic showdown. What can you tell us about this ultimate showdown on Mount Carmel? Yeah, the rumble on the mountain with Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, or Carmel, if you want to sound like a native, means vineyard of God. Now, I'm not sure what you picture when you read about Mount Carmel in the Bible, but before going to Israel, my mental picture was totally wrong. I envisioned a single mountain peak, something like Pike's Peak or a miniature Matterhorn. But when I got to Israel, I discovered Mount Carmel is a ridge about 17 miles long, and it varied in height. Some parts are relatively low, under 1,000 feet, while other areas are much higher, rising to over 1,800 feet. But I did get one impression right. 
The mountain is green and lush. The warm, moist air of the Mediterranean sweeps in and up the steep slopes of Mount Carmel, and as it rises, it cools. In the winter, this produces an abundance of rainfall, and in the summer, it provides moisture-rich dew. It's easy to see why it was named God's Vineyard. It looks as if it's been cared for and nourished by heaven itself. And that's what made Mount Carmel the scene of a mountaintop experience between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Most of us are familiar with the story, but I'd like to re-examine the story from three different perspectives, that of the mountain, the people, and Elijah. Uh, From the perspective of the mountain, this story seems to pick the ideal arena to hold the Super Bowl of the gods, Yahweh, the God of Israel versus Baal, the God of the Phoenicians. The two were locked in a struggle for the hearts of the people of Israel. Both claimed to be the God of fertility and abundance, the one who controlled the rain. For three years, the God of Israel withheld the rain, and Baal seemed powerless to do anything about it. Not very impressive for a God who claimed to specialize in sending rain. But why gather for a final confrontation on Mount Carmel? Perhaps because this normally lush green mountain had been a special place to worship Baal. Certainly in normal years, it received an abundance of rain. As the Super Bowl began, it was almost as if the God of Israel was letting Baal have home field advantage. From the perspective of the people, the contest also seemed rather lopsided. Yahweh, the God of Israel, had just one player on his roster, Elijah. Baal had 450 players on his team, along with an additional 400 prophetesses of Asherah, the female consort of Baal. Think of them as the cheerleading squad there to root the team on to victory. Even the rules of the contest seemed to favor Baal. The God who could send fire from heaven would be the winner. Baal was supposedly the God who could send rain, and with the rain came the lightning, fire from heaven. No wonder the people said, well, that sounds fair, when Elijah laid out the rules. And if that weren't enough, Baal seemed to win the coin toss. His prophets got to go first. If they could produce fire from heaven, they would win before Yahweh's prophet could even begin. Everything seemed to favor Baal. If he was really a god, then this would be a one-sided contest. Well, the contest was one-sided, but not in the way most people imagined at first. The people agreed the contest was fair, perhaps even tilted too much in Baal's favor, but they were still unwilling to choose sides as the day began. Elijah issued the challenge, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Baal was given every opportunity to demonstrate his claims to be God, and he failed miserably. There was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. The silence from heaven was deafening. We know that's because Baal never was God, but this revelation had a powerful impact on the people. And that leads us to the perspective from the prophet. After allowing the prophets of Baal to embarrass themselves by their own failure, Elijah stepped forward. Preparing the altar and the sacrifice, he added one additional challenge to the test. He poured water over the altar and sacrifice until everything was soaked. No one could claim spontaneous combustion if the wood under his sacrifice ignited. And then Elijah prayed. No leaping about the altar, no slashing of his body as the prophets of Baal had done. Just a firm call to the God of heaven. O Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, 
Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. And as soon as Elijah had finished praying, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. The final gun sounded and the people were now ready to declare the winner of the Super Bowl. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Elijah and Yahweh emerged victorious. The contest wasn't even close. But what lessons can we carry home from this mountaintop experience with Elijah? I can think of at least two. First, never underestimate the power of God. No matter what the obstacles are that you face, no matter how powerful the opposition might seem, if God is on your side, then you are on the winning team. From a human perspective, the odds were stacked against Elijah, but he had confidence in the outcome because he was standing on God's side in the conflict. Don't let circumstances get you down. God has already told us our team is going to win. But second, whenever you have a mountaintop experience, be prepared for the valley that will follow. No matter which way you go, the pathway off a mountain leads toward a valley. Times of great discouragement often follow times of great spiritual victory, so be ready. Elijah's mountaintop experience in 1 Kings 18 is followed by a spiritual valley in the very next chapter, as he ends up under a bush in the desert, exhausted, hungry, and thirsty, crying out to God to take my life. I'm the only one left. The man who stood against the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel fled before the empty threats of Jezebel just one chapter later. And the lesson for us, when you experience God's presence in a unique way, prepare yourself. Another challenge might be just around the corner. So be ready. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And I'm sure Elijah would add his hearty amen to those words. And I'd certainly add my own amen to that as well. Thank you, Charlie. If you'd like to hear today's very compelling devotional again, the entire broadcast is available online at thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. But better than that, you might want to consider downloading the Moody Radio mobile app. It's free for Android or iPhone. You can listen to The Land of the Book anytime, along with your other favorite Moody Radio programs or podcasts. Just search for Moody Radio at your favorite app store. At our website, you'll find updated stories on the Middle East, photos, stories, snapshots, lots of cool stuff to talk about. Check it out. The Facebook page available when you visit thelandandthebook.org and click on that Facebook icon. That's thelandandthebook.org and click on the Facebook icon. Well, time has a way of slipping away, doesn't it? I'm John Geiger, thanking you for giving of your time to be a part of today's edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.